welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to Series 5, Episode 8, and this is the Parable of the Sower. Our main text is going to be in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 23, but we're also going to look briefly at one of the parallel accounts at the beginning of Luke 8. Well, we're now well established in series five, which is the second tour of Galilee that Jesus undertook. And before then, of course, we saw the Sermon on the Mount in series four. And before then, in series three, the first tour of Galilee. This time in series five, with the second tour of Galilee, the, there are a number of key themes that, that are emerging. One is the significance of the fact that he's now appointed 12 apostles. He's training them and uh, he's shortly going to release them to work as partners with him, but separate from him. He's going to send them out in pairs. We see this in the text coming up very shortly in forthcoming episodes. Uh, a second theme that's emerged, which we've been looking at in recent episodes is the increasing and intense conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. In the last two episodes this came to a head with a major confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees when they accused him of being a false messiah and operating with demonic power rather than through the spirit of the living God. This provoked a really strong reaction from Jesus and he warned them and all who followed them that there was a terrible danger of them resisting his messiahship that would lead to judgment not just on them but on the nation of Israel as well. So it's been quite a challenging part of the narrative to consider. Uh, conflict is in the air, tension is in the air and the crowds are confused, not really sure which way to go uh, many people keen to follow Jesus, many of them loyal to their religious teachers and leaders like the Pharisees. Jesus is travelling around with his 12 apostles, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, we get a glimpse of the wider group of people with whom he travels in this particular episode. So I'm going to start in Luke chapter 8. And at the beginning of Luke 8, Luke describes the parable of the sower. We're in fact going to read the account uh, in Matthew. Uh, which has uh, slightly more detail, but we just want to capture something about the context which is recorded beautifully in Luke's account and not recorded elsewhere. So I'm going to read the first uh, three verses of Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus travelled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now this is a very interesting example of female discipleship. Obviously, the central disciples are the 12 male apostles, 
but there are many other men and women who are considering themselves by this time as followers of Jesus and are sometimes on the road with him as he's traveling around. But the particular focus that Luke makes here is on a number of women who have devoted their time and also their financial resources to support the traveling group of disciples. And this is important because where are they going to stay? What are they going to eat? How are they going to live? How are they going to buy the necessities that they need? These are very important and everyday questions for Jesus's disciples as they're on the move. And although many people were hospitable to them, they often had to make their own arrangements and they incurred cost. This is something not often discussed, but it's a fairly obvious point. Now we find out from John's gospel that Judas Iscariot had the responsibility for managing the finances of the group, which he didn't do very well because he stole from that corporate financial fund. Um, But the women here uh, are notable for the fact that they sacrificially invested their own resources. They must have been women who had some strong financial uh, resources to be able to do that and also the freedom to travel. We don't know all their personal circumstances, but it's worth just pausing for a moment and commenting on a couple of them. We've got here, for example, Mary Magdalene, who had experienced Jesus setting her free from evil oppression. Now, in popular mythology, Mary Magdalene is sometimes described as a prostitute, sometimes described as having some kind of a special relationship with Jesus. None of this appears in the New Testament. Let's be very clear about that. And so we should really stick to the picture of her given in the New Testament, which is much simpler than that and doesn't have those sinister overtones that have sometimes been added in much later on. Mary Magdalene was a sincere follower of Jesus who'd experienced a remarkable deliverance and healing and who very sacrificially gave her time and her finance to support the travelling group of apostles. And she appears later on in the story, as we will find out. The second person of interest here is Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. This is a very interesting description. The Herod mentioned here is Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. Herod Antipas lived, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, by the Sea of Galilee in a large town called Tiberias, which is further south of Capernaum, where Jesus based his ministry and from where he went around the country. Now, Herod Antipas hasn't at this point met Jesus as far as we know, but we do know from John chapter 4 that a royal official in the Capernaum area experiences a a remarkable miracle in his wider family. We know that a centurion, a soldier in the Capernaum area, uh, experiences a remarkable miracle in his wider family and household. And both of those men would have been directly connected to Herod's household. And they were living fairly close by to Herod's headquarters in Tiberias. So we already have two indicators of people associated with King Herod Antipas who um, were beginning to follow Jesus because of the incredible miracles that he was doing. Now we have a third and very definitive example here. And that is this lady, Joanna, who's so convinced about Jesus that she's willing to leave Herod's palace 
uh, leave her husband temporarily and travel around with Jesus's followers for a bit in order to support them. And her husband is the manager of Herod's household, so a very senior man. We have three different strands of evidence which suggest that Herod Antipas has people close to him who are following Christ as disciples even at this early stage. But the presence of these women here also indicates Jesus's affirmation of female discipleship, something that comes over very strongly also in his relationship with Mary and Martha, as recorded in Luke and John's Gospel. But our main topic here today is the parable of the sower. And for that, we're returning to Matthew chapter 13. This is the point when Jesus begins to teach in parables for the first time. And so we're just going to make a few introductory comments about parables. They can be described as a story with a symbolic meaning. A story with a symbolic meaning. And generally speaking, a parable is a story with one major point or theme or meaning. Occasionally, as in this case, the individual details can be linked very precisely in an allegorical way, that one thing represents another and another thing represents another. There's an element of that in this parable. But generally speaking, you can't go down to that much detail. And the parables are best understood as having one central meaning. And these stories had two effects. One is they helped the people who were seeking to follow Jesus to understand things better. And secondly, to the contrary, they made it a little bit harder for people who were resisting Jesus to understand because the truths Jesus was conveying were slightly um, hidden in the symbols. So they acted as a kind of point of division between those who were genuinely seeking after Jesus and those who were opposing him. It's interesting that parables start to be used immediately after this major argument with the Pharisees and the major moment when they denounce him as a false messiah, which is indicative of what the whole religious establishment was doing. And from then onwards, Jesus began to teach in parables. It was a deliberate strategy. Let's just read a few verses to indicate this. So just at the beginning, Matthew 13, verses 1 to 2. And the beginning of verse 3. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. And while all the people stood there on the shore, he, he told them many things in parables. And then verse 34 and 35 Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And from this, we find that the use of parables is quite deliberate. So Jesus is now making people think. These things aren't said entirely plainly that's said in a symbolic story and you've got to work out the significance of that story and your ability to do that indicates to some extent your attitude the seekers find the stories helpful 
And of course, they're memorable. And of course, Jews love telling stories. And parables were something that they used in their religious teaching. This is a very well-known parable. If you're familiar with Christian teaching or the New Testament or the Gospels, uh, you will be familiar with this particular parable. But maybe you're not. And even if you are, we're going to look at it closely and see what more we can learn about this story. So, Matthew 13, verses 3 to 9. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Well, Jesus is describing here a common agricultural scene. Everybody would be familiar with what he's talking about. After all, he's in an agricultural area. And by the way, Galilee was one of the most fertile parts of the country. And many parts of Galilee were well irrigated. The River Jordan coming into the Sea of Galilee and then to the south, moving south, uh, was the main source of uh, water and the lake had abundance of water. And so it was a fairly rich agricultural area. And people were smallholding farmers. In Jewish society, land was generally broken up into smaller units. Uh, there weren't so many commercial farms, although there were some. And everyone tried to have their own small holding. And in Galilee, there was a great effort to use the land to the maximum effect. And so this story would be very familiar. You sow the seed by hand. There are paths, there are rocky places. There's always the problem with weeds. And some soil is very fertile and some seed reproduces very effectively. When I first visited Galilee uh, many years ago on a visit to Israel, um, I made a point when I was in Galilee of going out into the fields and into the hilly areas and just having a look at the soil, taking photographs and looking at the vegetation uh, and the cultivation. Now, obviously in the modern age, this was in the late 20th century, the cultivation and the irrigation is vastly developed and very effective. But if you go away from those areas and look at other areas, you can see just in the soil there all the thorns. You can see how rocky sometimes it is. You can see sometimes how rich the soil is and you can pick up the soil and feel the richness of the soil. So there it is. The land is still much as it was then. And this story would resonate. People would understand this is our job. And of course, most people were smallholding farmers. It was an agricultural society. It wasn't a very heavily urbanized society. And in Galilee, 
there were very few towns of any huge size. People lived in the country and they farmed and they kept their animals. And that was their primary livelihood for the majority of people. Also to note, this can be a hot climate too. My first visit to that country, to Israel, uh, was in August. And it was a very, very hot month. I spent four weeks there and I remember constantly facing the heat and the dryness, which has a significant impact on the agriculture, of course. So why does Jesus use these parables? The disciples were a bit puzzled. They'd heard him for many months speaking very plainly about things and they wanted to know why he was uh, using these stories. And the next section from verse 10 to verse 17 is very, very important and a little bit hard to understand. But once you understand what Jesus is saying, it's very, very interesting and explains uh, the use of parables very effectively. Let's read it. Matthew 13, verses 10 to 17. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more. They will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Well, this is a little bit of a challenging passage when we first look at it. And, and you wonder, as I did when I first read it. Uh, what is Jesus really saying here? It looks like he's trying to be obscure so that people can't actually see the truth. Basically, the point I made earlier on about parables is made very, very strongly here. Parables illustrate the division between those who understand and those who don't understand. And both of these groups are in this story. The disciples are there, verse 16. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And the other people are in the story. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. So there are two groups in mind. Those who are open to the kingdom and those who are closed. Those who are heading towards judgment and those who are heading towards salvation. But in particular... It's interesting to try and work out what Jesus is doing by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, and you have that quotation fully there before you. Let's just think about the original context. 
the prophet Isaiah was speaking to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, at a time when they were very disobedient to God and they were heading towards judgment and ultimately exile at the hands of the Babylonian nation. That's the context. Isaiah anticipated this exile prophetically. He was called upon to speak to the people, but God said to him, as you speak to them, it's not going to produce a result of the nation turning around. They're going to continue in their negative views, apart from just a remnant, which is described in that passage as a, as a holy seed in the land. So basically, this prophecy suggests that Isaiah's words to them won't be received and they won't receive the grace of God and they'll end up in judgment. Now, in what sense is this being fulfilled in Jesus' day? Well, I think Jesus is drawing a comparison between the experience of Isaiah's listeners and his listeners. Isaiah's listeners were a decadent Jewish nation who were spiritually in a bad place, who were unbelieving, who were hostile to the God of Israel. And the listeners in Jesus's case, those influenced by the Pharisees and by skepticism in Israel, were likewise hardening their hearts towards Jesus's message. As we have seen in the previous two episodes, very clearly demonstrated, we need to connect this parable very clearly with what's just happened beforehand. Jesus has warned, if you harden your heart, you're going to end up in judgment. And so basically this prophecy here is saying that like the people of Judah in the time of Isaiah and afterwards, so the people of Israel in the time of Jesus are going to harden their hearts and head towards judgment if they don't respond to his message. And the parable merely illustrates the states of people's hearts when they say, what did that parable mean? We don't understand that parable. Well, why don't you understand it? Because not just because there's a mental or intellectual problem, but because there's a spiritual problem, because you've got a blockage inside you and you don't want to see the truth that is being expressed. So that's the purpose of parables. It opens the door for the people who are seeking and it confirms the negative uh, situation of those who are already hostile. Now, in verses 18 to 23, we have the conclusion of this parable, which is Jesus's explanation of its meaning. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed that is sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, 
60 or 30 times what was sown. It's very rare for Jesus to explain in detail the references in his parables and create an allegorical framework. As I said earlier on, this is rare, but it happens here and we can follow the lead. So the seed refers to the message of the kingdom, the gospel message. The sower can refer to God or Jesus. And the different seeds are in the different life circumstances. The seed on the path is the person who, when they hear something, it never really gets into their consciousness because the enemy takes it away. It's sort of hidden from them from the very beginning. The seed on the rocky places, which grows up quickly but doesn't have any root, represents to us what we might describe as nominal Christians. People who make a response and they seem to have faith, but they don't have any real roots. And the sign of that is that when the pressure comes, they drift away and they disappear or they change their minds. The seed amongst the thorns represents the people who genuinely believe, but who find it difficult to deal with the pressures of this life, particularly materialism and all the distractions that come from other goals in life. I wonder whether you know people like that who say, yes, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm too busy to be involved in the Christian faith or the Christian community. I'm just getting on and doing my own thing. And it appears they're motivated by other things other than their faith. So that's a very immature position. And then, of course, some seed falls on the good soil. That's the person who receives with sincerity the message and follows with determination Christ, putting him first in their life, in their life. Just look how productive such a person can be. So what reflections do we have on this as we draw this episode to a conclusion? Now, we've been looking a little bit at the purpose of parables, and that's taken us a little bit of time. But now we're going to actually, in our reflections, just think about the significance of this parable as such. I think the first and overwhelming lesson that comes over to me is that the mandate from Jesus Christ for us as believers, if we are believers, to share the faith, or so to speak, to sow the seed, that mandate is very, very strong. Jesus says, sow, sow, sow. Share, share, share your faith in all circumstances where you have the opportunity. Don't just look for results look for opportunities to share. Now, opportunities to share our faith vary enormously from different nation to nation, different regions of the world. I'm extremely aware of this. Sometimes it's hard to speak publicly. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes there is strong resistance from other religions or from the state or from our family culture or other forces. There is a big variety. But there's always an opportunity to share your faith in any culture. And the faith is being shared. The Christian gospel is being shared around the world through television, through satellite, through the internet, through preaching, through literature, through books, through the translation of Bibles, 
through personal testimony, one-to-one, or in writing, or communicated in other ways. There are many, many ways that the faith is being shared. And Jesus is basically encouraging us to keep sowing, but to expect that evangelism is a form of spiritual warfare. There's an enemy who opposes it, and not to be surprised when this is the case. And always we need to be aware that there's going to be a mixed response to the Christian gospel. You never know who's going to respond well and who's going to be indifferent and who's going to be hostile. We need to be aware also that materialism and the pressures of a busy life are a big distraction for many people. However, we will always find in every culture, in every place, fruitful disciples of Jesus who've made him their Lord, given him their lives and given him the opportunity to make them fruitful and effective a hundred times, 60 times, 30 times, however many times they have multiplied. They have been very effective. Now, my hope for you and for myself is that we are in that last category, those who have wholly dedicated ourselves to following Christ and therefore we're going to be fruitful and produce results in our lives that demonstrate uh, his grace to us. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.